You're listening to The Leonard Lopate Show on AM820 and 93.9 WNYC. New York City may be one of the last places you'd expect to find thriving agriculture, but over the past decade, we have seen an increasing number of commercial and community working farms, from raising tilapia in Brooklyn to growing tomatoes in the Bronx. And even if you have a limited space, there are plenty of creative ways to grow your own flowers, herbs, and vegetables, whether it's in a window box, a rooftop plot, or a community garden. On today's Please Explain, we are digging deep into urban agriculture, and joining us now are Annie Novak, the co-founder and head farmer of the nation's first commercial green roof uh, row farm, Eagle Street Rooftop Farm in Brooklyn. She's also the manager of the Edible Academy at New York Botanical Garden, founder and director of Growing Chefs, and author of The Rooftop Growing Guide. Also here is one of our regulars on the show, horticulturist Gerard Lordahl, director of the Open Space Greening Program of Grow NYC, a nonprofit which operates uh, local environmental programs, including the city green markets. And I'm very pleased to welcome both of them back to our show. Hello. Hello. Hi. Nice to be here. And uh, we invite our listeners to join in this conversation. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate, or on Facebook or Twitter, where the handle is at Leonard Lopate. Annie, you're right that New York City has a long history of rooftop gardening. At the turn of the 20th century, uh, what were New Yorkers growing on the rooftops then? I, I had a really good time researching rooftop gardening for the book, The Rooftop Growing Guide, in part because I love New York, and unsurprisingly, New York has a lot of precedent. Um, some of the places where I found rooftop gardens through history included places like the Rockefeller Center. The um, Rock had one of the first and exquisitely designed rooftop gardens, um, also on several hotels. And the hotels were doing, um, similarly to what farms are doing now, um, raising chickens, vegetables, and bringing those deliveries fresh to the guests below. And what are you growing at Eagle Street Farm? Well, at the moment, it's early May, so we're mm. still stuck in salad green and radish mode. <laughs> I just brought my chickens back down um, from the Berkshires where they winter, um, and mm. so we and we keep honeybees. But we're working our way towards our favorite crop, which is chili peppers. Can you keep other animals on a rooftop? Um, well, we uh, we have tried many different animals. In New York City, it's illegal to keep hooved animals, uh, although we did have goats briefly. But chickens and bees seem to complete the circle of supplying uh, manure and pollination. Years ago, I had a man on the show who took a challenge to grow everything that his family would eat for a year in his backyard. Mm. And he brought in rabbits to get some meat, and the rabbit bit him, and that ended that. Uh, maybe it was oh the rabbit that Jimmy Carter had to knock down. Oh, dear. Um, how, do, how do green roofs help the environment? Oh, in so many ways. Um, for us in the community garden movement, I mean, the heat island effect, for one, and uh, Annie's book is great. We use it as a reference, and she talks about that. Um, and uh, not only that, but just cooling the city for us, uh, the benefits of it, improved health, um, being able to not only beautify the rooftop with a green roof, but then taking it a step further and growing edibles, learning where your food comes from, controlling what um, is put on your food. So, so many benefits. And they capture stormwater runoff. 
Exactly. And, um, you know, we have a big problem in New York City at Grow NYC. We've helped community groups build 140 different uh, rainwater collection systems to prevent that rainwater from going into the sewers, which creates a pollution problem for us. And we what do you do with the rainwater so other than water plants? We use it for the landscaping. It's it's not potable, of course, because um, you don't want to deal with the residue of the uh, rooftop, and you have to have it tested and things like that, but we certainly use it for landscaping. What's the heat island effect? How do green roofs help mitigate that? Well, New York City is about three degrees warmer on average than any proximal area, and that's just because of all of the paved surfaces that we have and the flat rooftops that capture heat. So, one of the ways that green roofs mitigate that, and white roofing does as well, is mm. because it deflects a lot of that UV light and keeps the heat away from the city. You can do that. It doesn't have to be a green roof. It can also be a green space like Central Park or street trees. Any green surface or painted white surface will help. Gerard, have you found that more people have become interested in gardening since Green NYC first began in 1970? Oh, it's amazing. I mean, I have a 30-year history here, and I brought some pictures, Leonard, for you. These are some affordable housing projects that we uh, recently are working with. Every other day, I'm basically on a rooftop in the South Bronx or in Long Island City, Queens. And um, when I first started in 1986, we were often looking for people to uh, come to our workshops in community gardens. There were thousands of community gardens. Now um, the doors are being knocked down at our offices. We're getting uh, constant questions about how to start uh, roof gardens, uh, how to where community gardens are, where school gardens are that people can participate But in. haven't the community gardens been disappearing partly because the uh, property owners are claiming it? So rooftops may be a, a, a reasonable alternative? When I started in the city, there were 16,000 vacant lots in New York City. Uh, that was back in the 80s. And um, now there are very few that a city managed. And uh, many of the lots that are left are private owned. So yes, in some cases, we're running out of ground space. So developers know that people want farms in their new constructed buildings. And this is where we are coming in and working with them in affordable housing and providing rooftop space. My guests are Gerard Lordahl and Annie Novak on today's Please Explain Look at Earth in agriculture. And if you want to uh, participate in this conversation, have any questions, our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Annie, uh, do you think more people have embraced rooftop gardening since you first started Eagle Street Farm? Part of the impetus for writing a book, a comprehensive guide to doing this kind of work, is because I felt that people were becoming increasingly interested, but that was a mix of folks who did and didn't know the legal and safety, safe ways to approach rooftop gardening. One thing I would interject, though, is with the um, with community gardening on ground level and green spaces on ground level, one thing I would like to see is rather than it being an, an either-or with rooftop gardening, I'd like to see them both continue to thrive, because one of the interesting things about rooftop gardening is a still relatively new way of providing green space is that there are a lot of challenges to it. And not and, all roofs are appropriate. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. there's still, I mean, there are thousands of acres of rooftops that could support the weight load of rooftop gardening in New York City alone. There's a study put out a couple years ago that showed, um, I think it was 6,000 available acres, if I remember correctly. Um, and those were all rooftops that were 10,000 square feet or larger, so they could be used commercially. But what I, the reason I mentioned the ground level green space is because it is really meant to be, to me, greening of the city, edible or not, is an incredibly important issue. It's, it's, it really helps the health of our city and its citizens. You're open mm-hmm. to the public, so do you get a lot of visitors? The Eagle Street Rooftop Farm maintains open hours, although it is a private building, and that's important to mention while on public radio. We, we are a private space, but we do open our doors the last Sunday, the month from 1 to 4. We're getting a lot of international visitors, actually, which is very exciting because as a very proud New Yorker, I like to see that we are continuing to be a beacon in the world of the possibilities of rooftop landscapes. This is something that you don't see in other countries? We certainly do. I mean, I I have um, been really impressed, actually, not just around the world, but in the United States alone at how much more interest there is in rooftop gardening. Um, I think what still remains unique about a place like Eagle Street or a place like the Brooklyn Grange is that it is a landscaped green roof. And the only other place I've really seen that done is in St. Louis at Food Roof. Gerard, does Grow NYC work with rooftop gardens? Yeah, we do. Um, You know, since about 2000, uh, it's been really uh, quite a new um, interest in many New Yorkers, and we've been getting constant phone calls, as I said, from private homeowners asking us to give them technical advice. And on our website, you could get information about container gardening for uh, private homeowners. And then um, since about 2000, we've been working with a lot of school gardens, uh, growtolearn.org. Schools have been working on designs for their roof gardens uh, so that they could have the kids go right up to the roof and learn about where their food comes from. And then with the, um, the development boom and the housing crisis, we've been approached by many affordable housing developers, asking them with new construction to be at the table to help design um, amenities on the roof that would include roof gardens, beehives, uh, raised beds. Uh, and we have about five projects in the works. And every other day, as I said, I'm on a rooftop uh, at the Hunters Point South uh, building where there are 900 residents and we have 150 gardeners that garden Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. Via Verde was also a, a very popular roof project four years ago that we worked on and we're happy to say the gardeners are running themselves now in the Bronx. You mentioned container gardening. That's if you want to grow anything edible, you should grow it in a container. Is it ever possible to just stick a seed in the ground in New York City? Yeah, we're doing that in community gardens, and Annie's work with row farming, uh, they, they, row farming is really without containers, where you have the soil spread on the roof after you've put down um, membranes that will protect the roof, and then these rows are of soil that you could directly sow into. So but Annie, you, you've said that there are three golden rules to container gardening. What should we keep in mind when we're choosing containers? Uh, I would differentiate this answer between talking about rooftops and versus on the ground. If, if mm. containers in general, you want the largest volume possible. Um, you want to choose soil well. And you're quoting three golden rules. What was my third rule? <laughs> Likely it had something to drainage, do with drainage. Uh, drainage. Uh, can't damage the roots and, mm-hmm. and container materials were the three things. Oh, that if it's you on a rooftop, yes, yeah. you can't you can't damage the roof itself. Right. Yeah. What's the difference between using a plastic container and a terracotta or, or a pottery container? 
There's a lot of variability in container materials, and I would say if you are on a roof, weight is going to be your primary concern. And then the other thing to think about is the UV exposure. Over time, a container is going to break down. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's in a situation where you're constantly watering your plants, all of those materials will break down. And should we get the soil by just going to a garden center or one of those places that sells dirt? Probably the best mix for a rooftop is something that's lightweight and drains well. And then if you're planning on growing edibles, you want to add to it something that has a little bit nutrient heft. So what I usually advise is to start with a very simple potting mix. And then to that, add things like worm casting, something that packs a lot of bang for its buck in terms of nutrients without adding weight. Mm-hmm. Could I use something like a colander uh, as a... Could I repurpose it to use it as a container? In our 30 years of experience with community gardeners, they're very resourceful. So we've seen um, gardens. There are 600 community gardens that your listeners can check out and visit. Um, Old bathtubs have been reused for planters. Anything, as Annie said, that has really good drainage. Uh, Soil is key and the medium that you're using to grow the plants in. But um, we've seen all sorts of containers that are being used. And right now, schools are using uh, landscape fabric in um, woolly pockets to hang on cyclone school fences. And they're uh, growing in these pockets of soil. If they don't have containers on the ground, they could grow vertically on the chain link fence around their school gardens on the rooftop. And we're seeing more and more schools taking a portion of the playground and setting it aside Absolutely, for, yeah. for growing kids become gardeners. And, Andy, we once did a segment in the green space in which we had a whole bunch of kids from the Bronx who, were, who had chickens. Yes, we, um, it is it's really exciting the amount of interest that comes from schools. And I know Grow NYC um, handles a lot of that traffic. I, the work that I do at the New York Botanical Garden with the Edible Academy, our site, it's a two-acre vegetable gardening site in the Bronx, and we see 50,000 visitors a year, 6,000 of which are school kids. And it's the best work. It's really exciting to give kids that connection to soil. When you were asking earlier about if it's possible to grow in the soil in New York, you certainly can. I mean, with non-edibles, you can put anything in the ground and it will grow. Aren't there heavy metals in the soil? Yeah. Yeah, if, if you're if you're being careful about how you're handling it, and again, if it's not edible, so I think starting a green space is the first step towards restoration. Mm-hmm. What are the kids growing? Do they eat what they grow? We have a new kids, farm. Kids eat vegetables. In addition to the school gardens, as as Annie said, uh, your listeners can travel to Governors Island, where we have a school teaching garden, and we get thousands of school kids coming in through the school year, and they actually learn how to grow the food that they prepare and have a snack. Um, while they're at the site, there are chickens. Our neighbor is Earth Matter, and there are goats and chickens that they could visit and learn about composting. And then they're growing beans. They're growing and planting lettuce seed. Um, they're, they're growing all the vegetables and crops that you would normally find on Annie's rooftop at Eagle Street or any other community garden around. But the important thing is that kids are learning where their food comes from, and then they're actually eating something that they grew. And composting allows you to enrich the soil with stuff that you would normally throw away. Kitchen composting, sure, and worm castings, all these things are great. Old coffee grinds? Sure. Eggshells, all those things are good. We generally recommend that you stay away from meat and oil products, but if done well, um, you could add those things as well. We have to take a little break, but we will come back to today's Please Explain Look at Urban Agriculture with Gerard Lordahl, Director of the Open Space Greening Program of Grow NYC, and also uh, Annie Novak, who is, um, the, has, uh, is the co-founder and head farmer of the nation's first commercial green roof row farm, Eagle Street Rooftop Farm in Brooklyn, 
uh, and uh, she also is at the New York Botanic Gardens, and she has a book called The Rooftop Growing Guide, How to Transform Your Roof into a Vegetable Garden or Farm. It is published by 10 Speed Press. Stay with us for more. And we are back with our Please Explain Look at Urban Agriculture with Annie Novak and Gerard Lordahl and inviting your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at org, Facebook or Twitter, uh, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And uh, maybe listeners are concerned that we are not getting into the nitty-gritty of, of just how you do certain things. Oh. But uh, you're invited to call in and pick the brains of these two people who know so much about gardening. Uh, again, the number 888, not 888-212-433-9692. 888-888 is that other number. We are not going to ask you whether you become a member or not. We're just going to simply have a conversation about about growing things. Bob in Westchester asked if he could put orange peels in his compost pie pile because he heard that they have harmful chemicals and that they don't decompose. Composting should not be as mysterious as it is. The truth about composting is that everything, compost happens. Everything composts. I think what Bob is concerned about is, um, I would I would, I would, would say that the, just be assured, Bob, there are no harmful chemicals. I think what you're more worried about is attracting fruit flies or any other kind of pests that you might be worried about. It really does depend on the type of compost system you use. But if you're burying that food waste in the core of your pile and you're maintaining a pile that keeps it about 140 degrees, you should be good to go. And lemon isn't too acidic? I mean, a lot of things are very acidic. Coffee grounds are very acidic, for example, and people pile coffee grounds all over their pile. But I, I think a balanced pile is, is the way to go. So if you are putting in a lot of things that are very acidic, you can try and counterbalance by adding, you know, say, wood shavings or um, hay or um, grass clippings, anything that will help um, bulk it out a little bit. What you want to avoid are things like feces and meat, mm-hmm. which are not going to attract What about things. earthworms? Absolutely. I mean, the castings from earthworms are great. On our roof gardens, what we have are compost tumblers. So they're in-vessel tanks, in a sense, where you could add the compost. And we have redworms in there. We have all the food scraps, and we have the debris from the plants, and it all gets mixed. As Annie said, keep it at 140 degrees and keep it moist, and you'll have successful compost. And how do I get those redworms? Do I have to go to a farmer's market that... That the Lower East Side Ecology Center sells them. You could also go online and buy them. You could you could get them through the mail, and you can get them from your local garden centers here in New York City. And then I'm always afraid they're going to escape. Well, they will if they're uncomfortable. And actually, I would differentiate. If your pile's at 140 degrees, that's a bacterial-friendly pile. If it's at ground temperature, it's more worm-friendly. So it's, a, it's two different styles. Vermicomposting and composting are, are different. Mm. What about vertical gardening? What's the best way to begin growing a living wall? Well, very simply, we could just tell you in community gardens, as I said earlier, um, and school gardens, you could simply use the chain link fence and using landscape fabric, um, you could make these pockets 
uh, with woolly pockets, they're called commercially, and you could fill them with soil and you could grow in these uh, vertical walls. Something we have in Governor's Island, if your listeners want to come and visit, we've used the um, pallets, the wooden pallets that you see that transport um, supplies and shipping containers, and we have used those to make vertical walls, and uh, we use landscape fabric to fill them with soil, and then we plant herbs in these pallets, and it's an easy way to do a vertical garden in a community garden. Make sure they face south. Right. Joe in Hoboken wanted to know if biodegradable planting containers are good for plants and soil. You can use any kind of material. If you're if you're taking the biodegradable containers in order to plant them in the soil, what will eventually happen, one hopes, is that being in the soil, the containers will then break down. One thing that might happen in the interim, though, is they might become waterlogged because it's a container in the soil. Um, so what you might want to do is take a packaging knife and give it a couple quick slices and just make sure that there's water that's able to escape and that the roots can extend into the soil. You wrote that attracting animals like birds to your rooftop is a narrative, not a sound bite. What do you mean by that? Um, well, I have a lot of patience with the work that I do. And so a lot of times, you know, for example, the way we're dishing out advice right now, people want quick little pearls of wisdom that they can then apply. But if you string them all together and you have a longer practice of a pearl necklace, you'll you'll have a narrative that will help you um, grow better. And birds are part of an ecosystem and gardening inquire, requires ecosystems to thrive. So when I say narrative, I mean thinking about the entire web of life, not just mm-hmm. the bird itself. And not just putting out a bird feeder or well, having a butterfly book. Each of those uh, fulfill one need of an animal, for example, food. Um, But when you're trying to attract birds or butterflies, you want to think about food, shelter, mating space, um, all the things that animals require. And it's to me, it's not a huge leap. I mean, I myself would never thrive in a place with just food. I also want a place to sleep and a place to go on dates and lots Mm. of other fun things, Mm. as do birds. And it's true. On our rooftops, we have um, the kids love the insect collection. We have the bees that uh, get their attraction. You've got to get the right insects. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hummingbirds, no, no butterflies. No, and mosquitoes are the ones I usually attract. <laughs> well, we do have those pests as well, and that's an issue. So, you know, the same pests and diseases that you're dealing with in the ground, you're dealing with on the roof. And uh, I'm sure Annie can relate. Just this, just yesterday, we were collecting our aphids off of our kale that we were that had overwintered from last year. We were talking to the gardeners about how they can control aphids in the garden. What's the best way to start growing vegetable seedlings indoors if you plan to bring them outside? Well, it's really important that people understand that plants are special in the fact that they make their own food. And when you're starting to do seedlings indoors, you have to provide a good light source. And that doesn't necessarily mean just putting them next to your window, because your window, thankfully, filters a lot of the sunlight, which is good for you and your skin, but it's not so great for the plants who are starving. So investing in a plant light system is really useful. Um, In the Rooftop Growing Guide, I spend quite a bit of time talking about seedling starting because it does give you such wonderful control over the range of vegetables you can grow. You're not just limited to the transplants that are available to you, but anything your heart desires. Well, since they need sun, why do some plants thrive in the shade? Well, going back to the notion of ecosystems, everybody has their niche. Vegetables Mm -hmm. are plants that we have cultivated through human history. They're not plants that just sort of appeared in the world. And so through that cultivation, we've decided to invest um, in plants that need a lot of sunlight in order to thrive. So vegetables typically need more sun. A house plant like the kind you'd buy at a corner bodega, it's usually an understory rainforest plant that we've just moved to Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And we educate our gardeners by letting them know that, you know, you need a minimum of six hours of direct sunlight for most vegetables to grow. And a roof 
rooftops. There are some issues where you have shading from the adjacent buildings and things like that. Um, but um, sun is an issue, and you have to make sure that you have enough for the plants to survive. I do have an easy-to-remember tip about that. Plants will grow roots, stems, and leaves. So if you're eating a part of the plant that is a root, a stem, or a leaf, you will have success even in limited sunlight. The bringing plants in from other parts of the world, some people object to that. I have a friend who only wants to plant indigenous plants because she believes that's what attracts the right birds, the right insects to a garden. It's very complicated at this point. We have so crossed over our plant palette, and we've seen such detrimental results in our growing environment all over the country. Um, What I would be careful about is, you know, vegetables, it's kind of a mixed bag because all of our vegetables come from everywhere at this point. If you are introducing tomatoes ornamentals... Tomatoes are from Mesoamerica. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chilies right. are from And how could we South live without America. tomatoes? Right. <laughs> but, but certainly with ornamentals, you want to try and look for native mm-hmm. plants. If you're interested in maintaining a garden that has a lot of life in it, what I would say, though, is that if you have a native tree and it attracts native insects, they're not just going to come and sit there and look pretty. They're going to eat the tree. So <laughs> get ready for what a deli bar looks like. That's, that's what your tree will look like. And I think it's a beautiful thing, but you have to get used to it. And natives are also, you know, when people talk about natives, they talk about, you know, the opportunity that natives provide of being a little more low maintenance because if it was the true virgin soil then those plants would be easier to maintain if someone is interested in starting a rooftop garden uh, on a city rooftop what should they do first ask permission <laughs> certainly ask well, permission let's say you own the house mm. then you you have to find out whether your roof can bear the load There are a lot of legal parameters um, in New York City. Part of it is assessing your roof with a structural engineer. The other is making sure that your parapet height is at least 42 inches. Um, You have legal access and egress. Um, All of this I outlined. (laughs) I spent an entire Mm -hmm. chapter on this in the book because it's so important. And I'm sure you could speak to some of the efforts you guys have made. Well, I was just going to say that in in your book, Annie, it's really great because that is the mystery uh, for people. And uh, you've really laid out well explaining the process for starting a roof garden for a private homeowner or not. Giving us resources as well. Yeah, exactly. I I haven't seen in any other books. And it's really helpful. And knowing, understanding that there are complicated codes, you do have to get permission. You do have to understand the structure stability of the roof, and then the importance of the soil that you use. You know, you don't want heavy garden soil. You want lightweight soil, but that lightweight soil comes with some negatives in that it's often not very nutritious, so you have to supplement. So uh, the book really helps explain all that, and we're going to use it quite a bit. What about the fact that you're growing at a, a higher level than ground level? Doesn't that expose plants to stronger winds. We're on the 13th floor in Long Island City and we were there yesterday and we actually had to uh, cancel the Sunday class because winds were over 20 miles an hour and it became a little um, too cold and windy. Uh, Trellises, Annie, Annie talks about how certain things in the roof uh, happen like losing your trellis or you're sitting on your you're on an elevator going up to the roof with a flat of lettuce and next to you is a man with a briefcase these are all things that we share in roof gardening uh, but wind is definitely an issue and you have to make sure that you provide wind screens for instance our beehives we were worried about that and we had to prevent we had to provide wind screens for the beehives to make sure they overwintered same thing with some plants so wind de- does become an issue you have to water more we mulch our beds on the rooftop um we put a landscape fabric and then on top of the landscape fabric we have a, a mulch to prevent the soil from drying out desiccation is an issue how do you keep pigeons away 
Oh, I wish I knew. Does someone want to call <laughs> in and tell me? No, I. I what mean, about squirrels? If you're on ground level, <laughs> I uh, a lot of these pest problems. One of the ways I manage it and manage cultural problems like wind is trying to be a little more flexible in my plant palette. So if I'm encountering a lot of wind or encountering a lot of squirrels, I'll look for plants that may not attract or or have problems with things like wind. For pigeons, one of the things we've actually found most helpful, certainly being present on the rooftop. If you, the gardener, are there, it really helps. We also put up um, a plastic owl, which is very helpful. We have we have had scare crows and ticker tape. We can string ticker tape across the beds. Rosie in Brooklyn writes, what advice do you have for getting rid of rats in a community garden? Well, you know, um, often we're, we're dealing with um, gardens that think that the rat problem is coming from the garden when in actuality it's the adjacent apartment building that is keeping all their garbage piled up right next to the garden and they're not properly securing their garbage. So the New York City Department of Sanitation suggests that people put their garbage in these plastic rat-proof containers or garbage cans, the metal garbage cans. The plastic bags don't do it because these rats will, you know, they'll chew right through it. So properly securing your your debris and making sure that things are enclosed cuts down on it. Unfortunately, sometimes in extreme cases, we've had to call in the Department of Health and they've had to bait during the winter. Um, so those are some recommendations as well. But trying to cultural practices like not keeping a lot of food waste around and making it as inhospitable for vermin as possible is what the community gardeners deal with as well as trapping. My guests on today's Please Explain Look at Urban Agriculture are Gerard Lordahl, director of the Open Space Greening Program, and Annie Novak, uh, who is the uh, co-founder and head farmer of the nation's first commercial green roof row farm, Eagle Street Rooftop Farm in Brooklyn, also manager of Edible Academy of New York Botanical Garden, uh, and uh, the author of a book called The Rooftop Growing Guide, How to Transform Your Roof into a Vegetable Garden or Farm. And we are inviting your calls at uh, 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WMIC.org. On Facebook or Twitter, where handle is at Leonard Lopate. What about fertilizer? Is fertilizer necessary? Yeah, I mean, growing vegetables, if you want them to be good for you, you have to invest in the plant. And so there's a longstanding practice of different fertilizers, granular, liquid, compost, top dressing. Organic and, and synthesized. Uh, I definitely, Synthetic, I mean. I definitely advocate for organic. And the reason is because it's less the soundbite version, I guess, is because synthetic um, fertilizers will give the plant a boost, but it then discourages the plant from developing relationships with the um, bacteria and fungi in the soil. So you decrease your um, soil health by using synthetic fertilizers. And I, you know, soil is everything. After 10 years now of doing organic vegetable gardening, I promise you that you start and end with your soil. What about Absolutely. fish emulsion? Is that effective? Yeah. Just this past weekend, part of the activity of our roof gardeners in Long Island City was adding fish emulsion to the garden. Um, what we have to caution them about is that you don't want to add fish emulsion um, too soon when you're harvesting because you can get that residual taste in the vegetables. You can get so, quite sick. Uh, give it about a week uh, before you harvest after you've applied fish emulsion. But we use that quite a bit on the rooftops and in the community gardens as well. It's added as a, a side dressing and it gives it a good nutrient boost. Also compost. Um, we've 
recently added humus and um, cow manure, dehydrated cow manure as an organic fertilizer. And that you can't get very much of that in the well. city. I've gone, you can, I've gone you into my local it. store and said, can I have some cow manure? And they, they would say, we don't carry that. You're going that. to the wrong stores, <laughs> Leonard. Um, the box stores have it, 40 pounds uh, at a reasonable price. And also the garden centers, uh, Chelsea Garden Center, the Urban Garden Center. Um, so you can find it, but we, we just ordered 12 bags and picked it up ourselves this weekend and applied it. Now, I would assume that the best crops to grow in small spaces are basil, chard, eggplant, lettuce. I would say lettuce is great because it just keeps on coming and coming. The best thing to grow in a small space is the thing you want to eat. You're going to pay more attention to it. And I, I actually last night was um, uh, having a very fun conversation with Eli Zabar, who is, of course, like my like icon of foodism. And he was saying that one of his favorite things is microcelery. It's something where if you have any herb, if you're in a small space and you're trying to get a lot of bang for your buck, think about the unusual thing you can't get anywhere else or it's inaffordable anywhere else and then grow it, you know, at a smaller scale. So microcelery is fun because celery is like such a toss off. Most people don't like celery, but when you grow it at a small size, uh, you you can clip it and it has this incredibly poignant flavor. Eli Zabar has been growing vegetables that he then sells in his store below. He puts he grows them on his rooftop. Yes, he has a beautiful greenhouse set up at the Vinegar Factory on 91st and First. Um, it's truly exceptional. It was started in 1995, which well predates a lot of rooftop agriculture in this current movement. And the other thing I wanted to mention, we have such amazing, interesting new crops. A lot of the ethnic greens like papalao and epazote, I've been introduced to them through the community gardens, and they're really amazing. Um, being in this city with so many different cultures, you are introduced in the community garden to lots of different culinary treats. I understand that epizote grows naturally on our streets. I, I was you walking. See it as a weed. It's yeah. True. I was walking down the street with a Mexican chef who said, "Oh, there's some epizote. <laughs> I wish I could pick it, but it's it's in yes. the middle of the sidewalk. I don't think that it'll be very good." And your I... listeners can find it at our green markets, uh, the Union Square Market, Grand Army Plaza. Many of the green markets grow these ethnic greens, and they're real tasty. A listener on Facebook asks if gardening should be made a formal requirement in the curriculum in schools. There's certainly a lot of initiatives to make that so, and I'm getting a big thumbs up here uh, from Gerard. I would agree. I, you know, between Grow NYC, um, Edible Schoolyard, Edible Academy at the New York Botanical Garden, there are a lot of really, really wonderful. Slow Food um, is doing Harvest Time in Harlem. They have a lot. There are a lot of initiatives to make that happen. I think the challenge I can speak for what I what I have seen in schools is time. Teachers are under a lot of pressure to accommodate a lot of different requests and to make gardening part of that. Um, it's just proving to teachers that their curriculum can be executed in a garden, and it can. Yes. We've done a number of shows where we've had some of the kids who have done the gardening in the schools, and they say that because they're so proud of what they produced, they are eating vegetables that they never would have eaten otherwise. Yes. yes. And at Grow to Learn, uh, the trick is also, as Annie said, the teachers are overwhelmed, and a lot of times the school administrators can't always be doing the work. But to have a committee in the school garden that includes parents, that includes local community people, that takes the burden off of the teacher, and it could be more successful. Gerard Lordahl is director of the Open Space Greening Program at Grow NYC, which is a nonprofit that operates local environmental programs, including the city green markets. Annie Novak of the Eagle Street Rooftop Farm in Brooklyn, also manager of the Edible Academy of New York Botanical Garden, founder and director of Growing Chefs, and author of The Rooftop Growing Guide, How to Transform Your Roof into a Vegetable Garden or Farm it is published by 10 Speed Press. And I thank both of you so much for being on our show again. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us.